That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Hey, welcome to River Ridge Church. My name is Matt. If we have not met, if you're watching online, welcome. Glad you all are tuning in and joining us. Uh, so a lot of great things happening around River Ridge. Love what God is doing with the Dollar Club and being able to bless that family and just God's timing and setting all that up is pretty cool, I think. Uh, I know a lot of you gave to the flood relief uh, maybe three or four weeks ago uh, as the flooding hit our area with Campbell's Creek and Cedar Grove and even uh, down through um, Greenbrier Street. And so we collected money and then took out the checks and dispersed it to people. And so we got a thank you card back. And I just want to read this to you so that the little um, pre-print thing on the front says, Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Uh, it's from Psalm 107. And then the woman wrote this. She said, uh, To River Ridge Church, Dear Christian brothers and sisters, I just want to tell you what a blessing you have been to me. I appreciate the gift, and I know that God will bless you as I have been blessed. Thank you so much. And her name is Joyce. So that's because of your generosity. We're able to give kind of over and above to different places uh, and people who are in need. So pretty awesome. So uh, this morning we are in week two of our sermon series on the book of 1 Corinthians. It's titled Messy Church, Merciful God. And I uh, want to let you know, so next week we'll take a short break from 1 Corinthians. That'll be our 20-year celebration. Uh, and so basically it'll be just a kind of a one-off message, talk a little bit about the church and calling and sending and all that kind of stuff and tell some old stories about the church and some new stories. So anyway, just want to let you know that's what's going on next week. Uh, but as we go through this book of 1 Corinthians, uh, if you missed last week, I shared with you a, a number of background things and kind of cultural things that were going on uh, in Corinth, uh, and I gave you two challenges. And so if you weren't here, I want you to pick up on these two challenges. The first is this, is that you would read through the book of 1 Corinthians on your own, that you would read every word of it on your own uh, over the course of this series. Uh, when you walked in today or last week, there's a 40-day plan, which will help you to kind of break it up into smaller segments to do that. And then the second challenge that I have for you is that you would listen to every message. So if you're here, obviously you're listening, uh, but if you're not here, you miss, you're sick, your kids are sick, you're traveling, whatever, uh, that you would pick up the message online and listen to it so you have the full and complete sort of 1 Corinthians set, if you will. So last week, uh, just to kind of sum up where we are, last week we talked about how Corinth is a diverse city, has a wide variety of influences in the city itself, uh, but we also talked about one of the problems is that the culture was influencing the church instead of vice versa. And so as we talk about that, one of the things that was true about the church, or excuse me, that was true about Corinth, is that it was very divisive, you know, all these different factions, and that sort of factionalism or division type of thing was creeping into the church. And so we talked about in the church what we want to do as a response to that is we want to make sure that we're focusing on the gospel and not our personal preferences. That we all have personal preferences, I like it this way, I like it that way. We say, let's be about the gospel and not about our own personal preferences. And so this morning we're going to pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, which is actually the same verse we left off with last week. So if you want to turn to that as I uh, begin us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning and just being able to be together and to worship and for being a church that spreads the love of you with the generosity of things like the Dollar Club. And God, as we look into your word uh, today in 1 Corinthians, and it's kind of a dense passage in some ways, I pray that you would give us understanding, uh, help us to see what you're telling us, uh, but even more than that, help us to see and know 
how you want us to apply this verse as we leave this building today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I love uh, a good story. I love people and love hearing stories of people when they can tell a really good story. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but Bill Lepp uh, is a nationally renowned storyteller. He lives here in Charleston. I've heard him tell stories from time to time. He, there's a competition every year called the Liars Club, um, and, it's, and he's won the, he won the thing like five times. He won it so many times he had to stop because it was just too easy for him to win. He would tell these great, fa- fantastic stories. And he's one of those guys, and there's other people that I listen to that like, when they share, like I'm on the edge of my seat, no matter what they're talking about, right? You've met people like that. Like, they could be talking about how they went to Kroger and bought bread, and you're like, okay, and then what happened? And then what happened? They're just really good storytellers. I love listening to people like that. I think about Jeff Foxworthy. Like, he is a fantastic storyteller, joke teller. You listen to him weave the stories, and it's just, it's riveting to listen to people like him. Occasionally, and, and probably somewhat frequently, you also come across speakers who are incredibly energetic, but really more than that, they're engaging. Um, and I kind of put together a little collage there that you see behind me of people who are great motivational speakers. And whether you agree with them or not, these folks and people like them are excellent communicators of whatever it is that they're talking about because they're so good at making the point come across in a memorable way. So this week I was doing a little bit of research about kind of famous speakers and famous talks and things like that. Uh, And so I did a Google search on what are the most famous TED Talks, right? Uh, And so the one that, the second most famous TED Talk really caught my eye, um, and I'll share why. So it's by a woman named Amy Cuddy, um, and she, and um, her talk was called, Your, uh, excuse me, Your Body Language May Shape Who You Are. And she has 65 million views of this talk. But has anybody heard that talk? Okay, it must be 65 million other people, not in this room. It's okay, we'll get there, doesn't matter. Um, but what she does is she shares in this talk that how we sit, how we stand, how, we, how our body posture is, it affects the way and who we are in terms of, you know, kind of inside, the outside affects the inside. Um, and she has a very humorous, engaging way of talking about it, shows some pictures, and as, as I watched uh, parts of her talk, But what I found interesting, and why I picked this one opposed to the other, you know, 25 most popular TED Talks, is it had a note at the bottom of, so I'm watching on you, but it has a note at the bottom of it. And listen to this. It said this, some of the findings presented in this talk have been referenced in an ongoing debate among social scientists about robustness and reproducibility. Read criticisms and updates below for more details, as well as Amy Cuddy's response. So apparently she gives this great talk, 65 million people have watched it, and people love it, and then there's research that goes, you know what, what she's sharing may not actually be the truth, may not actually be true. And I, and I, am, I am no social scientist, I didn't you know, study in depth to know, like I agree with it, I don't agree with it, not my point. But here's what I find interesting, is she is so skillful at what she is presenting that 65 million people, or close to 65 million people, believe that what she says is true because of her order skills, because she's so engaging in the way that she presents it. We're in week two of 1 Corinthians, and there was a profession in Corinth at the time which was called a sophist. Okay, you can jot that down if you want. It's called a sophist. And what a sophist would do 
is they would go around from town to town in Corinth area and and, in the region, and they would go and they would present ideas. And they would be incredibly engaging about whatever they talked about. They may talk about religion. They may talk about philosophy. They may talk about styles of government. They may talk about history. They may talk about relationships, whatever it is. But they would go and they would engage the people in this, what was called sophistry. Now, sophist, it comes from the Greek word uh, of Sophia, which is the word wisdom. And so just like in that day, there were people who were trying to kind of gain popularity in our day too. You know, there's people who are, they're trying to win an audience. They're going around, they're speaking, they're trying to get people to come, you know, even on Facebook, they're getting people to like their talks on Facebook or YouTube. We have that sort of modern day sophist. Okay, so that was going on in Corinth. People going around speaking, getting people to listen to the ideas that they shared because of their eloquent speech. Then we read this. This is from last week. Each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, who is Peter, right? Those people, Apollos, Cephas, and uh, Paul, the people in Corinth looked at them as though they were sophists. They were like, oh, tell us the latest ideas. We want to hear about this. Boy, I love the way that you presented that. And that was going on at the time. And we talked about this last week, that there was division over which of these guys do you like better? Do you like Peter best? Do you like Paul best? Do you like Apollos best? Like, whose camp are you in? And so that is the culture that Paul is coming to about people love to hear ideas, and the people who present the ideas the best are the ones who win the day. And so this is what Paul says. We're picking up in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. He says this. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So that word there, eloquent wisdom, is the word Sophia. It's this wisdom kind of sophist thing. What he's saying is that I came not with this flowery language, not with this super engaging like the people who you hear, these sophists that come through town, I didn't present the gospel that way. I just came and talked about Christ. I just came with a plain and basic message to you. And he did that because he wanted people to see the truth and not the presentation. And so what Paul does over the next 19 verses, and we're going to work through these together, is he talks about this idea that truth is truth regardless of the presentation. And so if you're here this morning and you feel like I'm not really good at talking about Jesus, I'm not really good at presenting the gospel, then this, what follows, is for you. If you've ever looked around and said, man, that person is so good at talking about the gospel, that person is so articulate about Jesus, that person, if you looked and compared yourself to somebody else and come up short, then this message and what follows and what Paul's going to say is for you. Or if you've ever been intimidated, like, I don't want to open my mouth about Jesus because I might say the wrong thing. I'm not sure what to say. I may get, you know, out-argued by somebody that I talk to. I don't have all the answers. If that's you, then what follows is exactly for you. And I would also say this, 
If you are here this morning and you're investigating Christianity, you're trying to figure out what exactly does it mean to be a Christian? What exactly does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Then what follows and what Paul says is for you. Because Paul, unlike the sophists, says, I'm just going to present the basic truths to you. So we pick up in verse 18. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. So when Paul presents the gospel, he says there's two responses to the gospel. Some people think it's folly, and they go, ah, that doesn't make any sense. And other people say, no, this is true. This is the power of God. I can hear it in the words that you're saying, in the truth that you're sharing. And we see that today in our world and our culture. The people have different responses to the gospel. Some people are like, that's a bunch of baloney. Like a, a guy died and then rose from the dead, and somehow that gets me into heaven if I believe in him. Like, that don't make no sense. You know? But then there's other people who go, I heard that, and I believed it, and I lived my life that way, and wow, what an incredible change in my life. I know it's true. And that's the two responses to the gospel. So then Paul asks this. He says in verse 20, he says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So if you've been kind of following along and you're kind of connecting the dots here, you'd see, okay, he's talking about, he's referencing the sophists. The sophists were wise. They were scribes. They were kind of, when we talk about history, they were the debaters of their time. And so, but what Paul is saying here is he's saying that truth is not with who has the best argument. Truth is not with these other things. The truth is what is actually true. It's not about the smartest person or the best presenter. Then he says this in verse 21. It says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So he's saying, look, it's not about the eloquent speech, right? And he's even saying kind of about himself. He says, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. He's saying that even my words were not great. Even my words didn't make all that much sense to you. It wasn't about my words. It was about the power of God. That's why you have salvation, as he's talking, as he's writing to the Corinthian church. He says, that's why you have salvation, not because I spoke these eloquent words. As a matter of fact, my words were kind of foolish. It was the power of God in your life. What he did is he made himself available, and that's what we do. I hope that gives you confidence that we don't have to have all the right words and all the right speeches and all the right arguments and all the right illustrations because it's the power of God. We just make ourselves available. Early in my Christian walk, uh, in the first kind of year or so that I was a Christian and when I became a Christian in high school, um, there were two illustrations that I learned. I have them both up here. One is the ABCs, right? And so a stands for admit. This is how you become a Christian. Admit that you've sinned. Believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead and lived a perfect life. And then C is you commit yourself to following me. All that I know of myself, I commit to all that I know of God, right? I learned that. Very helpful. I also learned what's called the wheel of Christian faith, right? So if you want to grow in your relationship with God, 
do these four things. Pray, read the Bible, have fellowship with other Christians, and share your faith or witness, and then tie it all together by being increasingly obedient in all of that. That's how you grow in your Christian faith. Those are both really good illustrations, simple, easy to remember. And so I learned those in the first 18 months that I was a Christian. I became a Christian between my sophomore and junior year of high school. Uh, and then my senior year of high school, so this is a little over a, a year later, uh, I was involved with a ministry called Young Life, and there was a, this group of freshman guys that I just drove around everywhere. Like, I took them to away football games, I took them to, uh, you know, at the McDonald's, I took them just all these different places, I gave them rides home from school, I just, and then I also gave them rides to Young Life Club, right, where they would hear the gospel and sing songs and see girls and all that kind of stuff, they would do that, right, um, and then, uh, in November, we had a Young Life Fall Weekend. And so I got these guys, there were about six or eight of them, I would pile them into my 1972 Oldsmobile uh, in the trunk, wherever I can get them. But we took them to Fall Weekend, we actually took school buses to that. So we were there, and they, there they heard the gospel. And the speaker presented it, and one of the guys comes up to me on Saturday night, probably about 10, 11 o'clock at night, and he says, I want to become a Christian. How do I do that? right? Can you stick that illustration back up there? And so this is what I said. I said, here's what you need to do. You need to read your Bible. You need to pray. You need to have fellowship with other Christians, and you need to witness. I'd memorize that wheel. The problem is that's a great answer to a different question, right? If he had said, how do I grow in Christ? I would have said, these four things. It's the wheel. I could have drawn a picture. But he didn't. He said, how do I become a Christian? I want to make this commitment that they've been talking about this weekend that, that you've talked about, that I've heard about at Young Life Club. How do I do that? And I gave him the wrong answer. But here's the thing, is despite that I blew it, despite my foolish answer, despite my folly answer to use the word of Paul, he still became a Christian that weekend. I didn't have all the right words. I kind of messed up the illustration but the bottom line is, it's not about me and my words. It's about God and his power, right? Now, I, I understand this now. Hopefully, if you see the illustration, you understand the difference. Um, but I share that with you saying, I got it, like, not just not exactly right, but I got it kind of wrong, right? I was answering the wrong question. But God in his power, because I just made myself available, ended up this kid became a Christian, now, the next 10 or 12 verses, beginning in verse 22, let me read you verse 22. It says this. It says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Okay? So when people are interested in spiritual things, he divides them in broadly into two categories. He says the Jews, they want a sign. They want a sign like, I want to see a miracle. I want to know this is true. Do something that's going to prove that what you're saying is true. Whereas the Greeks were like, we want reasoned wisdom. They said they're looking for the Greeks seek wisdom. Like, give us the rational argument about why this is true. And then what's going to happen over the next, again, about 10 verses or so, is Paul is going to speak, or he's going to write these things and talk about, kind of talk to the Jews and talk to the Greeks. And there's another group that's going to come in a little bit about the Romans, and Romans were very much into authority. What does the authority say? Right? So you kind of have those three groups, those that want to sign, like, show me this is true with your life, with miracles. Show me the reasons this is true, 
or the other group that would say, if people who are in authority believe it and, and I trust them, then I trust what they say, right? Now, before I jump into this, I do want to ask you just a rhetorical question is, which of those categories would you say that you fall into? When it comes to knowing or believing that something is true, are you more likely if there's kind of signs and, and life change that accompanies it to say, yeah, that's true, it works? Or are you more prone to say, yeah, reasonable arguments and logic, that gets me there? Or is it more like the people that I trust and who are in authority, they say it's true and so I go that direction. It's just kind of interesting to say, where would we fall if we lived in this culture? But then he goes through this and it says this. He says, for the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. Okay? So he says, a stumbling block to the Jews. So for them, there wasn't enough miracles by Paul for them to believe it. So he was rejected by them. And then he says, and folly to the Gentiles. So the Gentiles, or the Greeks, they didn't think his reasons or his arguments were strong enough, so they didn't believe him. They wanted him to say, it's this, this, and this, and so we believe you, but they didn't feel like his arguments were strong enough. And then in verse 24, it says, But to those who are called both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God, that's what the Jews want, and the wisdom of God, that's what the Greeks want, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So saying that God's foolishness is better than the wisest argument by the Greek, and God's weakest miracle is better than the best miracle the Jew could ever look for or to pull off. Then it continues on. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. So that's the Greek way, the wise way. And not many of you were powerful. That's the Jewish way. And not many of you were noble birth. That's the Roman way. For God chose what is foolish in the world, so there he's referring to himself, to shame the wise. Again, that's the Greeks. God chose what is weak in the world, that's Paul, to shame the strong, which is the Jews. Okay? And then it says, God chose what is low and despised in the world. And what is low and despised in the world, talking about himself, is opposite of what the Romans want of somebody who is big in authority. And then it says, even things that are not to bring, even things that are not to bring nothing to things that are. Okay? I recognize that's some dense stuff, and you may need to read that on your own or kind of need a good summary. But what he's saying here is he's saying that God takes people who are lowly, who are weak, who are unimpressive, and he does incredible things with them. And you may be here this morning, and you feel like you're kind of in a hole. You feel like you're kind of weak. You feel like, oh man, my life is not a great point right now. And God is in the habit of taking people like you and using, him, using you, people like that, like us, for his glory and the growth of his kingdom because we make ourselves available. Now, why does God use people who are the lowest and the least and the not flashy? Why does God use people like that to bring about his greatness in the kingdom? Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, 
so that it is written, let no one, excuse me, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So he says, he kind of gives us no boasting. We're not allowed to boast. So we don't boast about our salvation. We don't say, I am such a great person that God wanted to give me salvation. We don't boast in that. It is because of God's grace extended to us that we have salvation. But the other way that boasting comes, and it's talked about here, is that there's no boasting about leading other people to Christ because we are nothing. All that we do is we make ourselves available and then God does the rest. And he continues on over the end of the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 1. He says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. That's that Sophia word again. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he comes and he says, look, here's what I did. I came to you. I didn't come like the sophists. I didn't come with all this eloquence and a great speech pattern and all these persuasive words. I didn't come like that because I didn't want it to be about me. I wanted it to be about Christ. And he says, and I was with you in weakness in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not, were not with plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And we see this again and again. And Paul is kind of, if you understand the language, he's starting to sound a little bit like a broken record. I'm not a great speaker. It wasn't my eloquent words. It was God. It's not me. It's God. I'm weak. It's God. Saying that over and over again. Why would he do that? Why wouldn't he want to use his best stuff and his best illustration and really winsome speech? Why would he want to say, I was kind of boring, I was kind of lame, I was kind of weak when I shared with you? Why would he want to do that? Because of what it says in verse 5. It says, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. It's this idea that Faith exists not because of Paul's eloquence, not because of a man, but faith exists in a person because of the truth of the gospel. It's the idea if Paul or me or anybody can talk you into something, then somebody else can talk you out of that same thing. The point is, in all this, and I recognize that these verses are kind of dense, but the bottom line point is the gospel does not depend on on how well you articulate it. The gospel going out depends on the power of God. And for me, that's very refreshing. That's very like, oh, phew, because I don't always get it right. I'm not as good a speaker as, and you can fill in the blank, and whoever you think about it, like I'm not an Andy Stanley or a Beth Moore or a Billy Graham or any famous Christian. I'm not that, and, and neither are you. But we don't have to be because it's not about our eloquence. It's about the power of God. Now, that's not to say that we need to be intentionally boring or intentionally sloppy or I know the right illustration, but I'll just give the wrong one to see if God can come through. Not saying that at all, right? But what I've said several times is that we make ourselves available to God. And so I want to talk for the last few minutes about our availability and what, what it looks like to make us available to God. So I, I give it to you in a kind of a rhyme, if you will. So it's the gospel wins the day, 
okay? And I'm going to fill in the rest of it, um, and then we'll go piece by piece. But the gospel fills the day when we pray, display, and say. Isn't that nice, Rhyme? You remember that, right? I'm such a sophist. Okay, the gospel wins the day when we say, display, and pray. So let's talk about each one of those. So the gospel wins the day. What is the gospel? I want to give you the gospel in a very concise way, and it's this. It comes from John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's the heart of the gospel right? That we are tainted with sin, but Jesus Christ came from God, who is God, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead, and if we place our faith in him, then we have eternal life. That's the gospel. How do you know if you have eternal life? Because you believe these things and you place your faith in him. And if you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your faith in Christ, that's what it takes. That's what it means. It's the ABCs that I messed up before. I admit them sinful. I believe in Jesus, and I commit all that I know of myself to all that I know of God. And I encourage you, if you've not made that decision, to make that decision this morning. The gospel wins the day when we pray. Okay, so what that means is we're praying for opportunities to share the gospel. We're praying to see those opportunities. We're praying for people that we know who are far from God. Praying for opportunities has been something that has been, something I've been trying to do better for a number of years. Um, and so I've heard the phrase, and you probably heard this too, if you do something for 30 days, it becomes a habit, right? You do something for 30 days, it becomes a, pretty much a habit in your life. And so with this particular point, uh, I started this, uh, well, technically 17 days ago. And I said, you know what I'm going to do every day? For 30 days, I'm going to start my day by praying that God would give me opportunities for the gospel, and that I would see them, and that I would walk through them and have gospel conversations. And so, and and I decided, you know, and if I miss a day, I'm going to start back at zero, right? If I get to 18 or 22 and I miss a day, I'm going to start back at zero, so I get 30 days in a row. That's just the way that I wanted to challenge myself. So I'm on day 17 of praying for that. I'm not saying that that's what you need to do, but I'm just saying that part of our role is that we're praying for gospel opportunities and we're praying for people. So the gospel wins the day when we pray, display. And so that's just the idea is that we live out Christ in front of people with our words, with our actions, with the way that we love people. And this is not to say we have to get this exactly right. We're not going to be perfect. We don't need to become little angels. But what it does mean is we're constantly saying, how can I be the person that God wants me to be? And sometimes that's apologizing, and sometimes that's loving, and sometimes that's encouraging. But it's the way that we live our life that is on display for people to see. And then the last is say. The gospel wins the day when we pray, display, and say. That we want to be able to, to say the gospel, to share the gospel. Earlier in the service, Dave held up a notebook where you can keep your sermon notes. And I don't know if you've ever paged through at the beginning of that, but the first or second page, and maybe second or third page, it has a, a presentation of the gospel. And so if you want to, well, how do I present the gospel? How do I share my faith with somebody? 
you can look at that and it gives you a little illustration about what that looks like. If you don't know what the gospel is, if you have a hard time articulating it, read that and it will share and it will help you to learn that. So we say the gospel. I want to close by taking you back to a phrase uh, that Paul used. This is 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. It says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I love that phrase because he's saying, here's what I know. I decided to do nothing other than I know Jesus Christ and I know that he was crucified. And that when we make ourselves available, that's all that we need to know as well. I've decided that I just know Jesus and he was crucified for my sins. And when people ask us questions that we don't quite know the answer to, we just go back to that. Well, what about all the other religions like Islam and Buddhism? And are those right also? Are they all right? It's like, I, you know, here's what I do know. I don't have answers about why those are wrong and Jesus is right. I don't know, but here's what I do know. Is it, I have a relationship with Jesus and it changed my life. And Jesus was crucified. He died for me. What about evolution? Like, is that true? Like, I don't know if it's seven days or seven million years or seven, eight. I don't know. But here's what I do know. Christ changed my life. And he died for me. What about all the hypocrites in the church? Like, the church is full of hypocrites. Yeah, there are probably a lot of hypocrites. I'm probably one, too, from time to time. But here's what I know. Christ changed my life. And Jesus died for me. And he died for me. For you. Well, what about all the evil in the world and all the shootings and bad people and death and people who shouldn't die? What about all of that? Yeah, I don't have answers for all, all why that happens. But here's what I do know I know Jesus Christ and I know that he was crucified for me and for you. That's the simple truth that we need to know and understand. Because when we do that, when we make ourselves available, the gospel will win the day when we pray, when we display, and when we say it to people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these words. Uh, it is good to know that we don't have to have all the words. We don't have to have all the answers. We just need to be available and point people towards you. Would you give us that courage and that confidence as we live our lives this week? In Jesus' name, amen.